As we just sung, speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. These are truths unchanged that we're about to read. They've come from the dawn of time, and they will echo down through eternity. So by your grace, help us stand on these promises so that we might walk with faith till your church, Christchurch Earlsfield, is built and as you fill the earth with your glory. We pray this for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his powerful name. Amen. One thing that reveals, uh, well, a lot about another person's character is their attitude when drying up the dishes at the end of a dinner party. There are the tolerant and there are the intolerant. Imagine you're washing up and you're there chatting away, you've had, you know, had a nice kind of dinner, and there's a person beside you and uh, they're somewhat intolerant. Uh, that is, they subject everything that you have washed up to the, the most minute scrutiny. Like, you know, they're checking the bodywork in a Rolls-Royce paint kind of shop. You know, it's that kind of scrutiny. And uh, you have that uncanny experience going on that you feel you've washed up a number of plates, but the, the pile that you are washing up doesn't seem to be going down too much. That is, they're passed around behind you and placed back onto the pile again. You might be one of those intolerant type of people. The other extreme, though, are the tolerant. You, you might be having a conversation and you miss a bit of congealed fat on a plate or something like that and put it on the washing rack. And suddenly the person who's drying up just says, let it dry off and then flick it off. It'd be fine. Absolutely no problem at all. <laughs> or they see a sort of smeary egg stain on a plate and they think, nothing, the tea towel won't polish up. You know, that, that kind of tolerance. You know the kind of people. See, different people have different tolerance levels. Now, let's not think about the, the trivial washing up scenario, but what about the church? What should be our attitude towards the dirt on our plates, if you like, in the form of wrong belief and wrong behaviour in the body of believers? Recognise this is a letter to the church, the, the real church, to Christians, the true church. And you see, that is the issue in Thyatira. Uh, and the letter shows us uh, the attitude of the risen Lord Jesus to this kind of, let's say, dirt in the church. So let's look at this letter, the letter to the church in Thyatira. It's on the main road, a bit of geography again, from Pergamum over to Syria. So yeah, it's kind of heading east that way. It is a very, um, well, uh, well, at least important of the seven cities, but still quite wealthy. Uh, well known in that way. But we don't have that much information about Thyatira. It's assumed that it is wealthy. Lydia, the, the trader of purple goods from Acts 16, um, came from this city. But the most important information that we have about this city is regarding the large number of what they were called trade guilds or sports associations. Uh, archaeologists have found numerous um, registers for such groups. The equivalent today may be, I'm kind of pushing it here, but it might be those kind of clubs for executives that you find up in the city and in, in kind of Mayfair, those kind of areas. Or pro, you know, the professional clubs, perhaps the country club, perhaps the exclusive golf club, that kind of thing. Certainly there are parallels between Freemasons maybe, uh, those kind of groups within uh, industries. Those kind of groups existed in Thyatira in large numbers, huge numbers. 
And the pressure for the church uh, to be in such groups for promotion purposes, to mix with those who've got the money, all those kind of things, would have been enormous. But the meetings of such groups inevitably involves kind of cultic activities such as eating sacrifice, meat and so on uh, for idols, and also sexual promiscuity. Such activities had then, it seemed, filtered into the church. They become normalised. These were um, activities that offended God. Behaviours, attitudes. And the thing is, they were being tolerated. So Jesus speaks. Look what he says, verse 18. To the angel, same again, always the same way. The, the leader there, the leader of the church in Thyatira writes, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So it, just an introduction again, it's the same here. These are the words of the Son of God here. This is Jesus' introduction. Now the theme and the situation of the letter to Thyatira, very similar to Pergamum. Therefore, Jesus introducing himself, stressing the same point again. It's, I am the divine judge. Son of God is used there alongside eyes of blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze, to push the readers back to probably Daniel chapter 3 and to the, the, the rescue that one like a son of God achieved in the fiery furnace for, you know, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You know the story. Therefore, just as Daniel's friends were protected amidst persecution, so also will Christ do the same for the faithful in Thyatira. Many also will see that this is an allusion to Psalm 2, where the Son of God is the one who will judge or rule with the iron scepter. We looked at that just a few months ago now. Now, whichever way you, way you look at it, this introduction of Jesus himself um, is showing us most clearly that he is the divine Judge, the Son of God who's enthroned at God's right hand, that position of power and of judgment. And we, like the church in Thyatira, need to be reminded of our submission before Jesus the Judge. Why? Because such knowledge provides a helpful corrective, doesn't it, to our self-sufficiency and our perceived moral autonomy. Now, one day we are going to meet this Judge face to face. And that's the reminder from Jesus here, at the beginning. Now, although the letter to Thyatira is actually quite a damning letter to the church, there's always something that Jesus commends them for at the beginning. Uh, like in all of our lives. There, there may be dirt in this church, like, like there's sin in all of our lives, isn't there? But there's still something that Jesus wants to recognise that is praiseworthy. So verse 19, look at it. I know your deeds. Your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Again, introductory, you do more now than you did at first. Once again, we need to understand that though in our minds we may be feeling very smug about ourselves, that we can rationalise our own sin, Jesus knows the true state of us as individuals, of the church here in Ellsfield and also the church in Thyatira. I know your deeds. It's interesting, isn't it? Every letter's the same. It's like we need to be reminded of that every day, every week. Jesus knows, and he knows it all. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? 
We may even think ourselves perhaps a little bit more superior intellectually, uh, kind of socially as well, comparing to our peers and our friends, because we have the capacity to hold in our actions. We don't blurt them out. We've kind of kept them under control because no one else knows. Oh, Jesus knows. In Thyatira, he knows their deeds. And it it seems quite good, doesn't it? Look at them. Um, their, Their love and their faith, their service and perseverance... He knows they're doing more than they did at first. That is, their faith and relationship with God seems to have progressed. It seems to have matured. They were probably passionately in love with God. They had a strong faith that seemingly was unshakable, even in this hostile culture in which they lived. They were probably serving God in some way, excited to do so whether it be through telling their friends about Jesus or serving in the church, or maybe serving some little kids or something like that, or doing something in the community. They also have perseverance. That is, they, they continue to be uh, excited for God and, and serving Him, despite the threat to their lives and all the pressure that was coming in on them as a church. Could there be any better Christians? Really? How could Jesus say anything against these kind of people? Any sensible person can see that this church... These are the kind of people who you look at and say, they are on fire for God. Those kind of phrases, which I don't use, but Americans do readily. It seems that they've got all the ingredients necessary for a vibrant, healthy, growing, enduring church. But look, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Surely one thing can't matter, can it? And it's only one thing. Surely we can be tolerant of just one thing in our church, maybe even in our own lives. It's only one thing, come on. That little vice we have. That little fantasy we got. No, it doesn't matter. It's only one thing. The rest is okay. There are some things in life that we need to tolerate, aren't there? And uh, the Bible is uh, pretty clear. It tells us that the, there is an element of right tolerance. Let me give you an example in Colossians 3. Bear with each other, same word tolerant, and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. The question is, how, do we, how can we distinguish between what is right to tolerate and what we should not tolerate? Certainly in matters of taste, tolerance is necessary, isn't it? I tolerate my wife's CD collection even though it includes Take That and Westlife and some other abominable boy bands. Um, in church, the, some here might tolerate more informal styles when we gather together, even though they would appreciate a more traditional style of service and so on. Even on biblical issues, um, there is a, a right tolerance, isn't there? For example, um, within our little family of churches, there are a number of ministers who would have differing views on when um, you should baptise someone. Some would baptise children and others would wait till there is a confession of faith um, as an adult or later on in their childhoods. Uh, on these issues, we don't pretend to agree or simply say that the issue is unimportant, but it is secondary to the central gospel truths on which we do agree. That is that Christ died on a cross for our sins in our place. That he was a substitutionary atonement. A swap took place. Oh, that's what we agree on. Without any fault. So you see, on matters, on secondary matters, tolerance is appropriate, but there is also wrong 
tolerance, inappropriate tolerance. And we see that in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So to our first point on your, on your outline, there, that the inappropriate tolerance, it's you tolerate Jezebel, the prophetess. These are not, you see, peripheral truths. These are not secondary issues. The central gospel truth is that there is only one God, and Jesus is the only way to that perfect and righteous God. And the only way that we can be put right with that true and perfect righteous God is through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins in our place. Through that swap that I mentioned. That is the gospel truth that we cannot move away from. Uh, So any involvement in or ambiguity about other ways to God, other religions, other worship of idols as we see here, or other practices that don't submit ourselves to that one God in the sexual immorality here, denies that central gospel truth. And the central gospel truth is that Jesus calls us into a new life where he is Lord, and he's Lord of everything. Every single aspect of our lives. Uh, Even those most private aspects, which no one else knows about, Jesus is Lord of that as well if we put our faith in him. The New Testament makes this clear in so many ways, in so many different behaviours, in so many different attitudes and ways of thinking. So you see, this Jezebel was not wrong on peripheral things. She's wrong on the central gospel things. But they tolerated her. Uh, No one corrected her. No one said no. No. Or try to stop her. And that is what Lord Jesus says is when tolerance becomes a sin here. And sadly there are so many, I mean I'm an Anglican minister and so on. There are so many, for example, bishops in America and even in this country that have taught that heterosexual and homosexual um, sex outside marriage is not wrong, at least not always. So in in, in the words of verse 20, like Jezebel, they have misled Christians into sexual immorality. And that is what this lady is doing in in Thyatira. She is misleading. She misleads you to sin. I've put a little sub-point there. Jezebel is probably not her real name. Uh, Rather, she's been labelled with that kind of proverbial title that comes from Ahab's wife back in 1 Kings 16. 16. She then had enticed uh, God's people into sexually immoral acts in worship of Baal, who was an idol of the time. This woman in Thyatira was, if you like, a Jezebel. Uh, We've seen what these Christians at Thyatira tolerated in this woman. But I suppose the the deeper question is why? Why are they doing that? Why did faithful people who have been commended, they're on fire Christians, why? Why do they tolerate it? Why are they being misled in such obvious ways? Look at verse 20. It's helpful again. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself what? It's a prophetess. In other words, you can imagine it. She says, yeah, I'm specially in touch with God, you know. I've had this word, I've had this picture, and so on. I've got some special message for you today. 
from God. Look at verse 24. She claimed to know the so-called deep secrets. In other words, she, she claimed to... I know you're sort of there with God, you've got a relationship with God, but do you know what? I can take you deeper. If you only listen to my words today, I'll take you deeper. You want that deep? A deeper understanding than the first teachers have given them, the apostles and the Lord Jesus. You want that, don't you? Christians, you see, can so often get confused by claims like this all the time. And I take the extremes of the charismatic movement. If you don't know what that is, ask me later. And I, I mean the extremes, because there are many good and valid and reformed uh, teachers within the charismatic book. The extremes I'm talking about here. Uh, someone has a, a prophecy, a, a word, a picture. And, and some of them can be just benign, but, but sometimes they can actually say, uh, well, I know God spoke like that then, but this word, if you like, goes above that and beyond that and leads you to that. Liberal churches are similar. They use phrases like this. The Spirit is guiding the church into a deeper understanding these days. The claim is that, not, that only modern scholars and contemporary Christians have really understood the Bible in its deepest ways because we've had 200 years of scholarly debate to work it out. Whereas verse 24 is clear. If you step away from the apostolic Bible truth and, and practice that the Lord Jesus has revealed to his apostles and now written in the words of the Bible, it is actually Satan who is doing the guiding. It is see, it's Satan's so-called deep secrets that some scholars are publishing. And we mustn't be confused, must we? by the claims of any supposedly Christian teacher, and nor by their credentials. Oh, I was watching, I don't know if you've ever got this, it's awful, so don't look at it. God TV, I've got it on Virgin, uh, I've, yeah, it's awful. Anyway, um, <clears throat> you get the, the reverent so-and-so, who will preach at you and tell you and so on. But the point is, you can be ordained in whatever church you want, but you can still be a false teacher. The credential isn't, if you like, the mark of faithfulness. And you may be doctor so-and-so with five PhDs in, in whatever it may be, but you can still be a false teacher. Now this confusion happens in the secular world too. There are certain claims, certain credentials that, that tend to make us be more soft and, and, and accept what is said, unthinkingly and sometimes without question. So you get phrases like, scientists have proved... And you get those kind of phrases like experts believe or statistics show. And we kind of go, oh, it must be true then, without looking at any evidence. And it happens in the church. You call yourself something like Jezebel did. Oh, I'm a prophetess. You, tem- you claim to have a deeper understanding, a, a direct revelation from God like Jezebel did. And some people will accept what you say, perhaps a little bit more unthinkingly, without question. And that's how Christians are misled, by claims, by credentials. And by the fact that, the the great thing is, that the false teacher always, always offers you an easier life. Notice verse 20, that that Jezebel doesn't call people to sexual self-control or even abstinence. Because that's not going to get her a following, is it? Instead she offers a, a looseness. And notice she doesn't call people to costly evangelism. That's not going to get you much of a following, is it? 
Uh, instead, she offers a kind of a multi-faith compromise where everybody is right and nobody uh, does wrong. So we don't have to evangelise, do we? Because what's the point of Christ? He doesn't have to save anyone. Doesn't love win? As the book has just been published. False teachers always make life easy, you see. And that's why, along with their claims and credentials, they are so, so seductive. So she misleads you to sin. Secondly, in verse 21, she is unwilling to repent. In Ephesus, the first letter we saw, we saw that the relationship between the church and God had, had gone cold. They'd lost their first love, hadn't they? And in Thyatira, they've gone way down the line. It's now blatant unfaithfulness. Coupled with that kind of justifications of, of their actions, such that there's now no willingness to repent. In the mind of Jezebel and her followers, they would have been conducting probably what they would describe, but we're just contemporary Christians. They would have justified themselves by the fact that they, they were doing the kind of, we're doing the new thing from God. We're, we're on the new wave of the Spirit here. To this generation, generation whatever letter it is nowadays. Perhaps in our own lives, we, we like to do this, and therefore we minimise various issues in our lives, justifying them to ourselves rather than before God. So, for example, for many blokes, you know, something like pornography becomes justified because we like to think it's, it's just better than sleeping around. You see what you've done there? Uh, but, but see if what it is. That's what we're being reminded here. It's, it's blatant unfaithfulness. Sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend, even if you're engaged. Blatant unfaithfulness. Essentially, you're saying to God... I know you have a plan for me. I know I should submit to your lordship through your word, but that's not good enough for me at this stage and for that part of my life. And we get to the stage, don't we, some of us, when, we, when publicly we can tell people what it is to be faithful to God. But in our own minds, we've, we've managed to negate the need for repentance on that aspect of our lives. Because we, we don't want to struggle against that particular thing. And look what happens. It will lead, as it did for Jezebel, frighteningly to judgment. The time of wait before judgment is unspecified. And some of us, we do like to play with that, don't we? It's like a game of Russian roulette for us. We'll keep on doing it because I'm not sure God's gonna, Christ is going to return quite yet. But for Jezebel, look, her time is up. Look at verse 22. It gets pretty sobering here. You see, as a, a direct result of her unwillingness to repent from her misleading, idolatrous, sexually immoral ways. Look what happens. I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. I want to remind you of God's love and mercy before we look at this. Sometimes described as his hand of mercy. It is powerful and it is glorious. Rich in blessing. If you want to know how much God loves you, you look at his hand of mercy. Most importantly, you look at the hand of Jesus. Bloodied and pierced. That's how much God loves you that he's willing to punish his son in your place for your sin. See, God's hand of mercy and love is beyond all measure. 
But here, in verse 22, we see his hand of judgment. And and it's equally powerful, isn't it? After Jezebel, justice comes rather than mercy. She chooses the hand of justice. She's beyond repentance, such that her punishment fits her crime. One commentator said, she who profaned the bed of love is pinned to the bed of suffering. For our followers, there remains some hope. Hence why it's warning language here from Jesus. There's an opportunity to repent, to turn, or they will suffer the same. It seems to children, um, that is probably the the phrase there, the beginning of verse 23, is, is kind of her promoters, her gang, the supporters of Jezebel within the church. Seems they're treated with equal strength, doesn't it? I won't read it. But you know what it says, and it's horrifying. If that wasn't enough, Jesus continues now to the rest of the congregation. I want us to move from the individual, I suppose, to the corporate now, in our second point. As he turns to the congregation, he says, do not hold to that individual's teaching. So to our second point, and why don't we just remind ourselves of verse 24 and 25. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, see the corporate nature, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. I want to take us back in the passage a little bit to see the corporate nature of what's going on here. And I think initially Jesus is just saying, get rid of the woman. Get rid of this one. Um, and all the ones who will promote her teaching, as in verse 23. And rather than holding on to her teaching, hold on to the Bible. Hold on to the Lord Jesus' words, rather than these deceiving and misleading words from this prophetess. There's no leeway, is there? In the language, it's kind of, you've got one or the other. Don't entertain thoughts of her sexually immoral teaching. There's no tolerance, there's not one little bit. And so the, the points I'm going to make are just, firstly, it's repent, there's that turn, or it's suffer with her. And we see that from verse 22, don't we? You, the warning is there, it's directed at Jezebel, but it's for all to hear. So hear it. Do not be stupid and ignore it. And if you're rationalising some sin in your life right now, and we all do it to some extent, if you have in your private life that, that sin which no one else knows about, and you justify it because I'm committed elsewhere, I do this for the church, I'm a seemingly nice guy and everyone knows that, then stop and turn and come under the complete lordship of Christ. Why? Because Jesus might come now. Or are you misleading others and yourself to ignore the need for repentance? If you are, then be warned. Jezebel and her children, look what happens. But there is comfort here, I think. Because each of us will get exactly as we deserve. We're not dealing with an unjust unjust God here. And I I put the point there, know that I am he who who judges fairly, verse 23. See, I think God sometimes gets a very bad reputation because he's been misunderstood, that he's the unjust, kind of just loves judging. And it seems harsh and unfair. But God in judging Jezebel and her children demonstrates to us all, and here's the comfort, there is perfection in his judgment. 
God does not punish any sins twice. He does not forgo punishment for any kind of cultural, political reason. He is fair. He will judge where necessary. And he punishes that which needs to be punished perfectly to the degree that is just. And in so doing, look at verse 23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. We will get exactly as we deserve at judgment. If we have been tolerant of false teaching, if, if, you know, if we have completely rejected God's lordship through Christ and his word in our lives, none of us will be able to shake our puny fists at God at judgment and say, that's not fair. We'll get exactly as we deserve. We will face God's perfect and uh, and just judgment in a place of judgment that the Bible horrifyingly calls hell. And that is what we all deserve, isn't it? And we are all in trouble unless we do what Jesus commands us to do in verse 25. Hold on to what you have until I come. That is, I think he's saying that ignore any new teaching. It's useless. Ignore any kind of Christian new lifestyles on offer in churches. Just hold on to what you have. I've shown you my words through my apostles. Hold on to that. If we read what each of us has in our hands, the Word of God, the Bible, if we live by it, if we commit to the subject of it, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and put our faith only in Him, and not in any supposed prophetess or whatever it may be, then we will avoid that just judgment for our sin. It's the only way we can avoid it. Because instead of justly and rightly punishing our sin on us, If we hold on to Christ and submit ourselves to his lordship, he will put all that punishment on his son on the cross. Hold on to the Jesus of the Bible. Do not tolerate anything that distorts him being Lord and Saviour. Hold on to it. How long? Until he comes. That is, be ready. Don't dabble. Don't play that game of roulette uh, for when Jesus returns or when you die. Hold on to Jesus and the revelation of himself and his word. And if you do, final comfort, here it comes. We need it. It's been tough. Look, the one who overcomes, or the one who holds on. It's been like that in every other letter. Now in verse 26, the one who does my will until the end. What makes the toil of discernment and struggle against sin and temptation worth it? What what makes it worth it? Well, again, we get these two brilliant pictures to finish this letter with. The one who does my will into the end gets what? Firstly, authority. In verses 26 and 27. Now, the Son of God was described back in verse 18, wasn't he? And he's the one who would deliver his persevering people to rule over the nations with him. Where the church in Thyatira had suffered under the rule of false teaching. If they overcome... That is, if they cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to his lordship and discipline those false teachers in their midst and the ones that they had tolerated, they will be able to rule all things with Christ for eternity. One small hurdle, one enormous gift. 
The quote from Psalm 2 and verse 27 points to the assurance that Jesus, he has begun to fulfil that. Only a little remains. And if the church, if we hang in there, we will be part of that final fulfilment as they rule with Christ, with the authority of the Father. But there is more, and here's where it gets really amazing. Look what it says, I will also give him the morning star. That was the most amazing symbol that each of these churches actually would have seen in the towns and the cities of victory, of triumph. It's establishment through victory and triumph. Jesus himself, though, is referred to the morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. And I think to the one who overcomes, to the one who does my will until the end, the very prize is the presence of of Jesus, of being with him face to face for eternity. It's the ultimate reward for overcoming, for discernment of teaching, for disciplining falsehood. The ultimate reward is to be with your Lord and Saviour face to face for eternity. Do you want that? So what and who do we tolerate to finish? In our own lives, are there things that God will judge fairly that we do not even see the need for repentance for? What do we tolerate in our own lives right now that we need the word of God to correct and for us to discipline? Have we normalised things like lust and fantasy, greed and envy? Have we normalised, whether it's pornography or our sexual activity, what is it? Have we normalised our longings, our idolatry, our longing for a relationship, or whatever it may be, you know the thing that you struggle with. Have you normalised that? Well, if we have, then we need to turn around. We need to (laughs) repent. Because God will not let it go on forever. We must not tolerate it. Because one day he will come in his judgment. Oh, it might come sooner than later in the form of suffering, as discipline, Hebrews 12. It may come through our deaths, or finally and ultimately in his return. Whatever comes first, it doesn't matter. Today is the issue. Today, we must not tolerate misleading teaching, whether within or without, because we've seen what it leads to. Hear the warning, if you have ears, and I guess we all do. Hear the warning and repent. Let's pray to close. Maybe just a, a moment of quiet to consider our own lives. What's, what's that thing that we justify ourselves? What is that thing that we need to finally exposed before God and turn to him and submit to his lordship as shown in his word what's the thing that we tolerate let's pray to God ourselves and our own hearts right now